I spoke to a young man a few days ago who was despairing of life. As I sought to discern his relationship with God, he made it clear that he had no time for Christianity. He liked to perform, he told me, pagan rituals under the cover of night with certain shady characters from his rural hometown. And as we continued to speak and I heard about his life and his concept of spirituality, it became clear to me that this young man had absolutely no center. The core of his being was empty. It was as if you could look right through his eyes and see the wall on the other side. There was nothing there. He had no anchor point for his troubled soul. And I think this young man is certainly a man of our times. In a culture that has embraced pluralism and multiculturalism and relativism and pragmatism, the center has collapsed, to use the words of David Wells in his book, No Place for Truth. He continues to draw out the point that the denunciation of absolute truth and any notion of a transcendent God constitutes what Wells describes as a flight to the edges, a dispersion from the central core of our beings. And the result is that the center caves in leaving traumatized and disoriented souls to search through the rubble for some vestige of hope. We should not believe for a minute that we as believers are entirely immune to this cultural trend. We are severely pressured to adopt the beliefs and the goals and the priorities and the attitudes and the interests that pull away from the center and keep us distracted at various perimeter points of small things. People of God, hear me. Hear me well. There is to be an unshakable anchor point at the very center of our souls. God zealously intends for us to view ourselves, to interpret our world, to weather every storm of life through the lens of this central point. And this truth unfolds in Scripture from cover to cover. It is progressively described for us that we may embrace it and hold to it. Before I speak of it pointedly, which I'd like to do as we close our time together today, I'd like us first to look and work our way into it as we look at Exodus chapter 12 and 13 this morning and continuing our series. I'd like us to walk through this text and to know that there is here the elementary expression of this central point for the soul. We looked last week at chapter 11 where we found the warning from Moses to Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, explaining to him precisely what is going to happen in Egypt. There will be the death of the firstborn of man and animal. In chapter 12, before we read the historical record of the Exodus, God gives guidelines for a ritual commemoration of the Exodus. Your Bible probably has the heading there in chapter 12 of the Passover. 
We have there in the first part of chapter 12 through verse 13 description of what Israel is to do on that night of Passover. And then at verse 14, notice that he says in 12:14, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On this first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. So there's this seven-day festival, Passover, melding into unleavened bread and a pointed reminder to the Israelites of the Exodus. As we've noted here, the Exodus is a sure thing. It's not happened yet, but it's a sure thing in the mind of God. And as chapters 11 through 13 unfold, we find again this commingling of instructions concerning future ritual commemoration and the historical event of the Exodus. You've got to track with me here on that point, or we miss it all. These two are commingled. There is the future commemoration and the historical event. The two are brought together in the text of Scripture such that they will always hang together. There's more here than simply remembering what happened in the past, but there is a way of bringing the people of God into the event by saying, here's what you will do to remember this event for generation after generation, even though the event's not even taken place yet. So the future ritualistic reminders of the Exodus are an essential aspect of the Exodus itself. This event then, follow me, this event is to forever serve as the controlling center of Israel's self-identity. Its essential point of orientation will be that God rescued us from Egypt by His mighty power and His infinite love. You will never forget this, says God. So in chapter 12, we have instructions concerning Passover and unleavened bread. And then at verse 24, we follow in chapter 12 and verse 24, we read again of this idea of instruction for this ritual performance or observance. Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The people bow and they worship at this word of instruction. Doing just as the Lord commands Moses and Aaron on that night. We pick up again then at this point in the text with the historical report of the Exodus that follows from verse 29 as we noted this and ended here last week. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. So in order to free his firstborn son Israel 
4, 22 and 23. God proves His power and authority by crushing Egypt's firstborn on a single night. In order to redeem their firstborn, the Israelites are to kill a lamb or a goat and to paint its blood on the doorposts, the door frames of their houses, per God's instruction. This blood of this sacrificial animal will stand in the place, will, in a sense, redeem the life of the firstborn in Israel. So there is a sacrificial lamb substituting for the firstborn. Then, according to the Word of God, who knows every free choice that any human being will ever make, says in verse 30, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And during the night, Pharaoh summoned up Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. At long last, the vice grip of Pharaoh is released from Israel's neck. This devastating blow finally brings Pharaoh to his knees. With no restriction, he says, Moses, Aaron, Israelites, go. Leave be gone. Do whatever you want to do. Now we have a summon here from Pharaoh to Moses, and that creates a bit of confusion back with chapter 10 and verse 28, where Pharaoh said, get out of my sight, do not ever appear in my, before my face again, in 10.28, and Moses said, I will never appear before you again. It is um, perhaps a solution that the Hebrew word summons can sometimes be translated contact. And so it may be that Pharaoh simply sends his uh, messengers, his officials, to uh, Moses and Aaron. And that is how he passes on this word. It do, the word does not demand that they stood before one another and had a conversation this evening. The only other option is that Moses' word in verse 29 was rash. And he says, I never will stand before you again, and he does. So I, I think that there is some indication in the text that this is probably Pharaoh's officials coming before him and doing just what Moses has predicted in chapter 11, bowing down before him and saying, please leave Egypt. They have been crushed and devastated, and there is no longer any resistance. Israel is free to go. In fact, not only does Pharaoh urge Moses and Aaron to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but verse 33, the Egyptians urge the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. That is an amazing statement that really is hard for us to grasp. But we must remember that the Egyptian army is the most powerful force on earth at this time. Israel is a nation of unarmed, untrained slaves. And we have the moving of this entire nation out of the power of Egypt. There is only one way that is possible, and that is the powerful hand of God. Nothing short of that could ever bring this about. We're not talking about a revolution between two armies that are fairly equally uh, prepared. We're not even talking about a war, a revolution, or battle where there's a great victory by the underdog. 
We're talking about people who have absolutely no capacity to free themselves. But here we have the Egyptians pleading that they leave. It is the power of God. And so, verse 34, the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs and wrapped in clothing. We have something here of the ancient backpack, uh, a backpack cooler of sorts, as they just take what they have, their, their dough, and they run with it that night. This will come into play later. But we note again how the ritual observance is linked to the historical event. We know this isn't just a a note in there for no reason. They carried their dough on their backs to get out of there. It's there because this will be the reason for that aspect of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to never forget this night on which they left Egypt. Verse 35, The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. This is a fulfillment of verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11. This is what God has said would happen. Now we should not, we need to read the word plunder here a bit differently than we would normally take it. Normally we hear plunder, that's one uh, invading army, let's say, taking the things of another uh, people, and the other people aren't exactly handing it over willingly or happily. That's not what we have here and not the way we're to understand the word plunder here. As I used the word, I think, last week, I used it the way we normally take it. They did uh, not plunder uh, the Egyptians in the sense of pouncing on them and taking from them what was not theirs. But we note here, this is something different. Chapter 11 and verse 2 says, they asked the Egyptians for wealth. The Egyptians, we find, are favorably disposed to them in verse 3 of chapter 11 and in chapter 12 and verse 36. That's not normal plundering. And in verse 36, it says that they gave to them these things. So it's a different kind of plundering than we would typically understand. The Egyptians willingly help the Israelites on their way, and God justly compensates the Israelite slaves by enriching them in this last night as they leave Egypt. And Egypt does this willingly. We have here as well the raw materials for the tabernacle that is to come. More on that by God's grace down the road. Verse 37, The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Ramses was apparently the last place that the Israelite slaves built up Pharaoh's kingdom. In the region of Goshen, the Nile Delta, Sukkoth is a, is a town on the outskirts of Egypt. The actual number, 603,550 men, 20 years and older, according to other texts of Scripture, leave Egypt. That could be possibly between 2 and 2.5 million uh, Israelites who leave Egypt. Now there's all kinds of discussion on this number and how it could possibly be so large But at any rate, there is a massive number of people that are leaving at this time, and the number the text gives us in 3826 is 603,550, which sounds like a pretty precise number, uh, of Israelites 20 years and older. All of Israel leaves is the point. Verse 38, many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. They take everything with them. Not only did they take everything with them, they also take some people with them. Did you note that there in verse 38? Many other people went up with them. Who are these other people? 
The Hebrew text could be translated a great mixed company. These appear to be non-Israelites who, whether well-intentioned or mere opportunists, throw in their lot with Israel. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4, some of these people, if not all of them, are referred to as the rabble among Israel. So it's not a highly complimentary uh, term, and we can understand very possibly that some of these were uh, criminals, that some of these were other slaves, that maybe uh, it's difficult to know who they were. If anything, they at least know who's on the winning side on this deal. And they know who they're going with that night. And they head out with Israel. Israel does not restrict them from coming. At Sukkoth, everybody stops for breakfast on this great day. As the light dawns, Israel is free. Kind of blinking, I think, and wondering what to do with this freedom. Verse 39, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. We've already read instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in chapter 12. We will hear more in chapter 13. So we witness again this commingling of ritual and event. The two concepts are inseparable. Verse 40. Now the length of time that the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. We go back to Genesis 15 and God's promise to Abraham many centuries earlier. You will be in Egypt for 400 years. 430 to be precise. Genesis 15 gives the rounded number. From Abraham's standpoint, it really didn't make a lot of difference but it was 400 years, essentially, that uh, they would sojourn in Egypt. And that is all over now. We come to a place of tremendous transition in the life of Israel, in her history. 430 years in Egypt have now been complete. That's a long time. Think about the length of our own nation. It takes you back quite a while, 430 years. It's all over. And this section concludes with verse 42, which says, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. We can't miss this point, can we? Over and over again. The ritual will commemorate the event. We have further Passover regulations that come at verse 43. We'll work our way through these fairly quickly. But at verse 43 we read several regulations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. When you have this ritual meal, no foreigner is permitted to eat with you. That's restriction. There's a reason for this restriction. These non-Israelites are permitted to travel with you. If they want to join the winning side, they want to be with you in the desert, that is fine. They are invited to come along, but when it comes to the time for Passover festival, they're not part of that because they're not part of Israel. What about the slaves in Israel? They're a little bit different situation. Verse 44, any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. So if a slave identifies with the covenant people, then that individual is permitted to eat the Passover meal. But, verse 45, a temporary resident and a hired worker, so here you have somebody who's not an Israelite, but they're a worker too, 
they may not eat of it. Why? Because they're not circumcised, because they're not part of the people of God. Verse 45, or 46 rather, verse 46, it must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Interesting phrase. The whole community of Israel must celebrate this Passover. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males of his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. And, of course, in this patriarchal orientation, the one circumcised, all of his family, all of his uh, people would be able to eat. The uncircumcised, none of the women and children would be able to eat. So, concluding, all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Verse 51, And on that very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. From these summary verses of the Exodus event, God now turns to instructions concerning the ritual observance of these events. We find more ritual instruction. Now, particularly concerning the consecration of the firstborn and the commemoration of unleavened bread. In chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Obviously, everything belongs to God, right? What is it that does not belong to God? But that's not the point here. That's not what God means. That only the firstborn belonged to me. What he means is that every firstborn male of man and animal was to be dedicated uniquely to God. Now this was not an entirely novel idea. The pagan, pagans around Israel thought along the same ways. They would dedicate the first fruits of their harvest to their gods. They would dedicate the firstborn to the gods in various ways, sometimes in sacrifice, sometimes just in other ritual dedication. They would dedicate the firstborn of their cattle, again, sometimes in sacrifice. Different rituals, different peoples, but there was these very same themes. But God takes what is there and He reinterprets it to a degree. He makes it unique, saying the firstborn belonged to God as a perpetual reminder that God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Now later, the firstborn son will be replaced by the whole Levitical clan. But at this point, if you have a firstborn son, that one is to be given to the service of God uniquely, prior to the Levites taking that place. We're going to get this by the end of this sermon, aren't we? But God did not want Israel to forget the Exodus, did He? Now we're not talking about one festival one time a year. We're talking about every time a firstborn son or animal is brought into this world, you're going to remember the Exodus. Because I bought all the firstborn in Egypt. Verse 3, when Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. This commemoration, these specific rules are to be carefully observed in the future. Verse 4, today 
in the month of Abib, you are leaving. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during these those seven days, nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. Not in any way to be disrespectful, but don't you get to this place and say, God, we get it. I mean, we're, we're see- this is being repeated over and over and over again. God will not allow Israel to forget this exodus and the ritual that goes to remembering it, with remembering it. She will be brought into the promised land. Turns out to be 40 years later. Israel doesn't know that right now. But she will return to the promised land. And when she enters that beautiful land, she is never to forget the deliverance of God. She is to observe seven-day festival of unleavened bread every year. Verse 8 continues, And on that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. There's to be a training of the next generation. The history of the exodus from Egypt was to be carefully passed on to the children. They were to be instructed in why we do this ritual. It's to remind us of what happened in the past. The exodus event cannot happen every year. It happened once. But we remember it every year that we never, ever forget what God has done for Israel. That He has delivered His people. Listen, my son. Listen, my daughter. Here's why we do this. The point has already been made in chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, prior to the actual exodus. It's repeated here on the back side of the exodus. Front side, teach your sons and your daughters why we do this. The event, backside. Teach your sons and your daughters why we do this. Verse 9, This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with His mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. The word like here is added in the NIV And so on our hand and on our forehead, that may well be the right interpretation, that this is figurative, that it's to be like something engraven on your hand and like something sitting between your eyes on your forehead, something you never forget. It's always to be there. The Jews took it uh, later, took it literally, and put little leather boxes that they bound with a band on their forehead and on their wrists, on their arm. And these boxes would have contain little slips of scripture in them, reminding them who they were. Now get the picture of this. Even if the Jews were wrong to take this literally, it doesn't really make any difference if they were. In either event, this event was to never leave their sight. You see, again, it's not just a one-time-a-year ritual, but it is to be, as it were centered on their forehead and bound on their arm. They were always to know they were God's people who were delivered miraculously from Egypt. Never to forget. 
Verse 11, and after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Constant reminder every time a firstborn is brought into the world. What does that mean exactly? to give over to the Lord. What about large, expensive livestock? What about our cars? That is, the donkey. What do we do with that? Do we kill the firstborn of every donkey? I mean, there's not all that many around, and we need it for transportation. What about our children? Are we to kill them? What are, what are we to do here? The instruction follows. Verse 13, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So if you have a donkey, this expensive livestock, this means of transportation and of work, if you have a donkey that is born under your holdings in your household, you can redeem it by killing a lamb in its place by killing a goat in its place. You can sacrifice that animal to God and redeem it. And that is what you are to do for your son. For a firstborn male son, there is to be a sacrifice that evidences that this child has been redeemed. That is, the sacrifice dies in place of the firstborn, giving it life. And we have the concept here of sac substitutionary sacrifice that is made clear and will, of course, develop in the text of Scripture. Verse 14, in days to come. When your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offering of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. God is just not going to be misunderstood here, is he? We just go back and forth, back and forth to this ritual that points to the event and reminds them of their deliverance. Verse 16, he says it again, And it will be like a sign, or it will be a sign on your hand, and a symbol on your forehead, that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with His mighty hand. We move then into a section of narrative now, so the instruction ends here, and it ends on this note. You will never forget. You must always see all of life as if the Passover is right between your eyes and hanging off your arm. You will always see yourself from this angle. He stresses that the deliverance event is to constitute, constitute the burning center of Israel's identity and her interpretive grid of life. We are the people liberated from bondage by the Almighty. That is what Israel was to say. That is what her children were to come to believe. Both the circumstances surrounding that event and the rituals are calibrated to keep that event ever in Israel's mind. Powerful demonstrations of the might and love of God. Israel was God's firstborn son and God redeemed Israel. 
with the death of the firstborn in Egypt. He was her Lord and keeper. There was death, there was misery, there was trial, there was a mighty act of God, but in it all and at the center of it all was God's love for his people. You know where this is heading. You know what we see here. But let's bring to our day and to our time what this means. I return to the beginning of this sermon and our center as followers of Jesus Christ. The times have radically changed, but I would argue that the essential program is precisely the same. The Old Testament in all of its outworking is pointing us where? It is pointing us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the journey to which we are headed as we go through the text of Scripture. In the New Testament, we have the fuller picture of God's redeeming purposes, which are not out of sync at all with what we find here. In fact, they fit very well together. They come together like a puzzle piece, locking into one another very beautifully and giving a bigger and broader picture for us. We find as the process of redemption goes forward that we are enslaved to sin. Our slavery is not simply in physical Egypt, but is the slavery of sin, our rebellion and our orientation against God, and we cannot be delivered. Sin is the Egyptian army holding us to our natures in rebellion against God. And there's no deliverance. But as the Word of God develops, we come to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ redeems us by laying down His life as the final and fully sufficient sacrifice. As the Israelites smeared that blood on the doorposts, so the blood of Jesus Christ covers for us. And in our sin and in our bondage to it, we can turn to Jesus Christ whose blood pleads in our behalf. And we can apply that blood to our own hearts. He is the substitutionary Lamb of God, the perfect moral being in whom there is no flaw such as was to be true physically of the sacrificial Lamb in Passover. In fact, it goes so pointedly as to say that no bone was broken. John draws back to Exodus 12 and verse 46 and that simple phrase that we can just lose in the text so easily. Chapter 12 and verse 46, where it says there, do not break any of the bones. What's that matter? This lamb is going to end up on a spit this night and eaten, and everything that's left is going to be destroyed in the fire. What in the world does it matter that you don't break a bone? John goes back to this very text, and he says of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, not one bone was broken. This one who has described in chapter 1 and verse 29 Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this Passover festival, all of this ritual, all of this exodus of Egypt is pointing us to understand who Jesus Christ is and the redemption out of sin that He provides as the perfect Lamb. 
Paul explicitly refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. He was a lamb, writes the Apostle Peter, without blemish or defect. In fact, there is even ritual observance, isn't there, for us as Christians. We stand in a different day and the sacrificial system and much of the ritual and festival that went into Israel's identity is passed for us, is no longer necessary. It's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But God gives to us two rituals, doesn't He? Think about it. What are they? He gives to us baptism and He gives to us the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you the question, what is at the center and heart of these observances? We are buried with Him in baptism, and we rise with Him in baptism. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the death of our Lord until He comes. What is at the center for us and the ritual that we have been given by our Savior, there is at the heart of it all the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to remember as a church through these very simple rituals that we have been given, pared down, simplified because of all of the fulfillment of Christ, but nonetheless in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, we see a demonstration that the death and resurrection of Christ is to be centered on our foreheads and hanging from our arms in everything that we do. The death and resurrection of Christ is to be engraved on the palm of your hand, written on your heart, and centered on our foreheads as the controlling center of our lives. Christian, we're being pulled to the fringes today by our culture, by our wealth, by our materialism, by the ways of this world. We're being pulled to the fringes. There is an emphasis upon family and career and money and possessions and sensuality and entertainment and friends and popularity that is everywhere around and we are sucked into that way of thinking and sucked away from the center. We can become so interested in these exterior, outer points of interest that the center begins to cave in. We need to come back to the solid core of our faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a danger, I think, even for those of us who walk in a conservative church and a biblically oriented church. Follow me on this. There is a danger to misread the gospel of Jesus Christ as a past event that pertains only to our conversion. That is devastating. I may speak to some of you here. Hear me well. There are some who think of the death and resurrection of Christ as a past event that really came to bear in my life when I trusted Christ as my personal Savior. And that's all the farther that the thinking ever goes. When we think of it simply as a way to get saved as something that was a past event that got us saved and now there's other issues We look at life in a different way. We're missing the center. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to be at the center of our self-identity, at the center of our interpretive grid of all of life for all of time. 
and the Lord's Supper and baptism, like the Passover and unleavened bread, are not isolated events that simply periodically point us back to what Jesus once did and to that time in the past when I received the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith. That's not what Lord's Supper and baptism are all about. These ritual observances for the believer in Jesus Christ are a way of demonstrating that the death and resurrection of Christ is our center. It is our way of interpreting life. It is our worldview. It is the core of who we are and will be through all eternity. The blood of the Lamb reconciles me to God. It does not merely give me a ticket to heaven. It brings me into right relationship with God, and it is that blood of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, that ever serves in that capacity to make me right with God. Can I draw from recent events? You bear with me on this. I think we see this demonstrated in our life, in our church. We've talked in past weeks the horrifying news that Gerilyn had to deliver to Katie in the hospital and her request, having heard this news, is to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Can I suggest that's the center? The request was made to sing, It is well with my soul, coupled beautifully with that song, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. His blood ever pleads for me. That's the center. The gospel is not merely a plan for converting sinners. It is a story to be ever remembered. The blood-stained cross and the empty tomb is the rock on which we center our lives and hold on against any storm that blows. Because in that ultimate storm, Jesus Christ spread His arms and died to defeat death, to defeat sin, and to provide a way into the presence of God and cried out there on that cross, it is finished. This is the center. And it is to this center that we must cling in any storm. It is to this center that we must cling as we come into death and face eternity because it was all dealt with there at the cross. There is a blood-stained cross and there is an empty tomb that is to be the center of our orientation in all of life. And for those that know God, it ever will be through all eternity. I ask you this morning, is that your center? 
Or are you being so pulled away by the things that this world offers that you're really caving in at the center? Listen, there's going to be a day when the storm blows. And that center's got to be strong. If nothing else, that is the day when you enter into the presence of God when you go through the valley of the shadow of death and you face death and walk into the presence of the Lord, what is going to hold you in that moment? The more the cross, the more the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our way of viewing all of life, the more solid is that center when we enter into trial and temptation. Have you been redeemed? Has the blood of Jesus Christ been applied to you personally such that you know you can enter into the presence of God forgiven of your sin? If not, I plead with you to seek the Lord today and to ask that He would open your eyes to understand His gospel, to see how you can be saved. If you have embraced that message of Christ crucified and risen, may this be our center for all eternity. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are so weak. We're so easily tempted and enamored by the things of this world, by our own sensual drives, our own self-centered purposes. God, we fail to see so easily what really matters. There are times when you shake us awake. And we thank you for a text of Scripture like this for us to face reality and to ask the question of whether or not the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is really at the core of our being and is the filter by which we view all of life. We have nothing if we are not reconciled to you and forgiven of our sin. We have nothing if we do not have the inheritance of heaven and a future home in your presence. Help us to remember this and help us then on the, in the other direction to remember that this is the all-important feature of our life. This is a passing world. Help us to cling to it very loosely. And I pray that we would cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it would affect every aspect of our lives. It is my suspicion, Father, that there are those of us who are your people that are way out of sync. We need repentance. And I pray that you'll hear the earnest cry of any soul that raises up a prayer of confession and repentance right now. Forgive us, Father, for holding on to that which is temporal and not seeing that which is eternal. If there are any among us who know not Christ as Savior, 
I pray that you would lift high in their eyes the Lamb of God and that they would be drawn to his saving grace this day according to your will, by your mercy, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.